Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Sonika Garcia. And I'm Brad Davidson. And this is Breaking the Code, a podcast series focused on debunking the myths about the discipline of behavioral science and arming our listeners with the information they need to make sense of behavioral science and to help them apply it to their work as marketers. So welcome back. Thanks for joining us. Today's episode is called Why Are There So Many Parks in Pharma Ads? AKA, why do all pharma ads appear oddly similar? There's always someone walking in the park, walking on a beach, looking hopeful and joyful with the wind in their hair and a loved one by their side, whether that be a human or a canine. So I want to jump right in. Brad, let me ask you, talk to us a little bit about analysis and optimization of imagery in campaigns and what the role of behavioral science is in that campaign development. Sure. Well, first, let's take a step back. There's a branch of social science called semiotics. Sometimes it gets conflated with linguistics, depending on where you are. But for our purposes, we'll we'll sort of divide those two things. We'll say that the science of studying images as signals is really called semiotics and for for our purposes that's what we apply to the behavioral science end of marketing imagery that gets produced so to go back to the very first premise here like why are there so many beaches why are there so many parks why are there so many dogs why are so many people sailing there's a lot of sailing in pharma ads and overwhelmingly one of the problems is that when we use an image over and over like we tend to do in pharma something like the family on the beach or the family picnic at the park it becomes less powerful it literally becomes bleached of meaning through repetition and so it almost gets hollowed out and instead it starts to mean something else a lot of the images that we show when we show them to people cold the first thing they think is that's a pharma ad not oh that's a a life well lived or oh that's a wonderful day at the beach there's something about the way we compose them that becomes very staid very formulaic we don't mean to we certainly hire a lot of creative people to do a lot of great work and i'm not saying every ad's like that but a lot of the ads are like that and so you know the role of a social scientist in a campaign like that is to help create imagery that actually has an impact that isn't bleached because yeah any any ad is supposed to change your thinking and change your behavior and if if we have images that have very little impact it's it's not helping do that. So I, I think just from a very simple formula, social science helps identify imagery that's going to have the intended impact on the viewer. A lot of what we do does not. And that's sort of interesting. That's really interesting. And so I guess before I jump into something that I found really interesting online as far as repetitive imagery goes, explain a little bit further when you talk about semiotics and and that analysis. I know we do a lot of that work within medical anthropology. Talk to me a little bit about what that process is like and how that fits into this conversation. Sure, absolutely. So, you know, I've not always worked in pharma. I did work in consumer packaged goods for a while. I worked in all sorts of automotive stuff. And one thing you notice when you put pharma ads side by side with ads from just about any other category is how narrow the box that pharma puts itself into is. And so 
as a semiotician, what you're trying to do is find images that resonate culturally, that resonate in the moment, that don't seem dated. If you look at old ads for kitchen appliances, they not only look dated, they look like you're trying to commit product suicide. They're so sexist. And many of them are also quite racist and a few other things. So you can, if you just picture ads that had a certain impact or tested a certain way in the 70s and the 80s, and you put them in now, you can see that like cultural tastes and imagery evolve. And so what signals something like power and independence in the 70s for the Marlboro Man probably comes off very differently today if we used exactly the same imagery, because our tastes in what it means to be a man, what it means to be independent, what cigarettes represent, all of those things change over time. And our interest is what do these images represent? What do they evoke in the minds of people? What we what we typically want them to evoke is some kind of desirous state, right? Like we are the problem with working in pharma. It's not a problem. It's just a universal truth. Nobody aspires to needing our drugs. Nobody aspires to having asthma or aspires to having lung cancer or any of these things. What they aspire to is the result that the drugs will give them, which is to be cancer free or asthma free. And so we tend to show the asthma free state, which just means go live your life. And so we seek universal imagery that will index for people that will signal to them this is what happens if you take our drug, you get to live a life well lived. The problem with that is not everybody agrees all the time on what fun is. For some people, bowling is great. And for some people, bowling is the worst way to spend an evening possible. And so you end up with this very small set of images that test universally as something that people find appealing. So parks are you you'd have to be pretty strange not to like a park with your family you'd have to be pretty strange not to like a sunny day at the beach walking with your family or your dog um right. sailing is always fun right these are leisure activities these are things we do to to show that our life is going well and we put them in pharma to show people your life can go well as well the the problem is from an image standpoint they signal nothing um, in fact, right. they rarely have any indicator of the disease state we're talking about. Now, that's for skin conditions. Beaches make sense because you're showing skin. That's what everybody wants to do if you have a skin condition. But then for cancer, you also show a beach because everybody wants to have a day off and spend more quality time with the family. So we end up with these universal signifiers of time well spent with family or time well spent or just freedom from disease. I think that's really sailing as a metaphor for just like an easy path. The problem is when you only have a small set of them that resonate exactly the same way with everybody, you end up reusing imagery to the point of emptiness. So I think the role to go all the way back to your first question, the role of semiotics is to help find images that are both timely of the moment, don't seem super dated, but also don't just test well in the sense that people understand what they're trying to convey, but actually have some emotional resonance, some real emotional resonance, some authenticity to them, uh, as it were, perceived authenticity, because of course, ads are fake. So you can only perceive authenticity or fakeness. They're both equally fake, but how we set them up is is really how they end up getting perceived. You said a lot that I think is really important to call out. I want to start first with, I found it so interesting. So I, I found a study that was done and basically a company analyzed like 83 healthcare campaigns and picked out like the top sceneries that were used, the top like plot themes. And, you know, Parks was number one. It was used in like almost 
half of the the campaigns. Potted plants was like a really a really popular plot theme. So all this to say, like people out there know that this is happening. This isn't something that we're like uncovering for the first time. People are aware of how much pharma campaigns really like copy one another and appear very similar. So I guess my question to you is like, if people know this, and there's even been like mock campaigns that have been done making fun of pharma ads being so similar. Like there's so much of that out there. Yeah. The, the, the famous have it all when more is not enough. And it just shows the smiling woman in front of a suburban house. Like that. And you don't even realize. Yeah. You don't even realize that that's not a real campaign. So now everyone is aware that this is happening. So why is it still happening? Like what's the disconnect? I think it's because, again, there's a lot of ways of showing people having a great time on a cruise ship, for example. You could focus on the food. You could focus on, hey, it's you and your kids. You could focus on, hey, it's you and your spouse. You could focus on, hey, it's just you and a whole lot of other young people, and you might be able to pick them up. Like, there's there's themes that you could, like, build off of in different ways. But for us, we end up, even though the briefs are very sophisticated, and even though certainly our depth of knowledge of the conditions and the treaters and and the sufferers – they're they're pretty robust, but then we end up at a brief which says, like, this is for patients who are determined to do more. Name the condition, right? Second line therapy. It's always the the target audience is the one who is unsatisfied with the current state of affairs and they want to uh, do more for their own health. OK, how do we show that? There's a limited visual repertoire that is universally understood to mean I am determined to fight something. And one of the most neutral ways of doing it is to show a person staring at the camera with their arms folded with a sort of very determined look on their face. I am shocked that your study didn't find that to be more common than potted plants in parks, but I can't think of a category that doesn't have somebody staring out at the camera purposefully. And the reason is because, again, we test these things to the point where the things that float to the top are the things that are universal signifiers, but like a stop sign, Just because everybody understands a stop sign says to you, stop, it doesn't have any emotional resonance, right? You don't even barely notice it. So, yeah, you have signaled to me that this person, uh, if I spent the time to look at this, then I would think that this person was determined to fight more. But the problem is I see so much of it, I don't even really look at it. So I think we test ourselves in the corners, frankly. I think Mm – we're looking for things that don't upset people. Uh, healthcare is something that you don't have a lot of room to offend or upset people. And so we look for things that are safe. I'm convinced the reason potted plants and parks rather than, say, actual like wild outdoors, because they're safe, because people feel safe there and they test well. And so you end up with a lot of parks and what I call like tamed wild, like suburban lawns and parks and potted plants like Yes, it's nature, but it's not going to come out and bite you. So I think we just, without meaning to, but definitely it's our own fault, the way we test these things, we end up in a corner. It's definitely the way that we test creatives like lends itself to this repetitive imagery that we just see over and over. And I and I totally get that. Um, I guess 
something that you touched on when you were talking about the semiotic analysis that I think is really important to call out, it's this concept of adjacent categories and the importance of considering that when we, you know, develop campaign imagery. And I know there's a term liquid expectations, and I would love for you to jump a little bit into what that means. And without going too much into detail, because I think we could definitely cover that topic in a different episode on its own. But like, why is that important? You know, like, sure, it's fine to stay uh, to stay safe within pharma, but we're not watching TV and only seeing pharma ads. They're, you know, mixed in with other things. So, you know, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, exactly. So, for example, let's take something that you and I did recently where we looked at a cancer that mostly affects elderly men. Um, and we said, well, OK, we can look inside the category of prostate cancer and see how elderly elderly men are represented there. And there was sort of a universal sameness to them. Again, they were sort of like, um, for lack of a better term, like uh, uh, energy less. They were very placid. They were there was a lot of cardigans. <laughs> there was a lot of uh, guys smiling with well-trimmed facial hair and uh, with with a partner. But when you looked outside of um, pharma to other categories that were catering to exactly the same audience, you saw a much wider range of emotions. You saw much more activity. You saw no cardigans. What you're starting to see is baby boomers tatted up with big beards, driving a convertible with their wife who's shouting out the window with joy and, and a lot more energy. And so even the same target audience looking at different types of ads can pick out the pharma ads because we've moved beyond this sort of idea of old age as this placid cardigan-like quiet demise. Like people want to do stuff. The elderly are very active. The elderly are very, for example, sexually active. That's a very big taboo these days. You can't show sensuality among the elderly. It, it sort of weirds people out in this country. We're changing that, though, and pharma hasn't. So I think really what we notice is pharma is very, very conservative, not only in their approach to what they say, but what they show. Now, the big change here, and and you've pointed this out to me several times, is there's a premium right now in pharma to show the right person. So we have gotten the memo that you can't just show a battery of, uh, well, old white men, frankly, or old white women, that you have to really represent the target demographic accurately. And the target demographic is much more racially diverse than it ever was, no matter what that target is in this country. It's much more gender diverse. It's much more age diverse. So, for example, in prostate cancer, inside prostate cancer, what we saw was age matched heterosexual partners consistently. Outside of that, you're starting to see same-sex elderly couples. You're starting to see mixed-race elderly couples. You're starting to see what they used to call spring-autumn relationships, where there's a big age gap. Not in pharma, right? So pharma tends to cleave to traditional social values that have become very dated. And and so as a result, even though we do start showing people who, who look right, they're not doing very much that makes it very interesting and exciting. The the one part that I would say is changing is in HIV, where they've really gotten the memo that you have to show your target demographic. But again, if everybody is showing same-sex couples and mixed-race couples kissing in public, which was taboo when I was a kid, it loses impact because they're all doing the same thing. And so I think we're very conservative. I think we really 
it in the worst possible way, focused on showing the right people without showing anything that makes them the right people. They they still wear gap level clothing. It's still old, cardigan old men. So I think we do ourselves a disservice when we say, well, we've shown we put the right people in the ad. Therefore, the ad will resonate. That's a false logical conclusion, as it were. And we're guilty of it, right? It's almost ubiquitous now. We're getting better. And I I don't want to say all the ads are the same, but a lot of the ads are the same. Enough that if you asked some man on the street or woman on the street, tell me what a pharma ad looks like, they could describe it. I think that's a really important point. We really just think that we've done enough by making the target patients look diverse and even there we can improve a bit but we don't really care about what they're doing like the activity could be nothing that you know a black male in his 50s is actually going to be doing but hey we have the right person so like who cares if it's just again him walking in the park so I I think that that's a really really important point okay so this was amazing I I think we should have another episode not just on liquid expectations and diving in there but actually maybe a case study on doing this analysis at our agencies and seeing how the creatives really take what we've uncovered and the amazing work that they then do with it is important to call out because that's been done and it's been very, very unique and and amazing, specifically in like the vaccine space. So I I would love to dig a little deeper into that and show work that has been differentiating that has come out of our agencies. So uh, more to come on that. Yeah, let me touch on that. I mean, I don't want anybody to go away from this podcast and think that everybody's doing a terrible job. A lot of people are not doing a great job. But for example, if you look at Havas Link's, their naloxone campaign, which deals with the opioid reversal, overdose reversal, that's a very authentic campaign. That's a very gritty campaign. And the characters in it are not only people who you can imagine would need naloxone. They're telling you they need naloxone. They're telling you like, I was thankful I had it when my girlfriend overdosed and things like that. They're not hiding the fact that they're um, drug abusers, frankly. Uh, but but they're also in situations that make sense. They're on the street. They're standing. Uh, they're standing somewhere, and they're and they're speaking openly, and they're using a register and a tone that is appropriate. Which you know, one guy saying, "I'd rather carry naloxone than carry my mate's coffin." You know. Uh, that I think is something that we should embrace more. Like the 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 idea that health and healthcare have to be completely sanitized for mass consumption has failed us a little bit. So yeah, I think we could talk about that. And I'm really excited to do so. Obviously, we both are very passionate about this topic. It's a major thing we analyze really is imagery and how to create impact. So yeah, I'm excited to do this yeah. again. Awesome. Okay, so let me just wrap up some important takeaways and points that you touched on. So one, making sure that we're doing our due diligence on the marketing side by doing a semiotic analysis and really analyzing not just the category that we're looking at, but adjacent categories as well. So that's one. Really making sure that we're looking beyond the person and we're looking at the campaign in a holistic way that takes into consideration time, place, experiences, really what makes that person who they are. So that's point two. I think a big point is the whole testing of creative. We do not test creative appropriately. We need to do a better job at that to really make sure that we are developing campaigns that are differentiating and unique. Again, another episode could totally focus on 
unique research approaches that really oh, yeah. will test creative better. Stuff. This was great. Thank you so much for all that insight. That was very helpful. And I'm sure our listeners will agree. Thank you to everyone who's listening. We really appreciate it. And until next time, I'm Sonika Garcia. And I'm Brad Davidson. And this is Breaking the Code. Thank you. Thanks, guys. See you next time. Or talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.